Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for it, and we pray that you'll guide us by your Holy Spirit and help us to believe, to understand and believe, and then to obey this word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will give us the grace we need to carry out whatever we learn. And may we, Lord, rejoice in you, rejoice in your goodness, and in your faithfulness to us. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. The prophet Zechariah, in the last two chapters, chapters 7 and 8, has been dealing with the concerns of the people in their current predicament, and then he exhorts them based on the past and also on the future promises of God. He exhorts them on what promises God has for them to those who are repentant, to those who believe, to those who seek the Lord and know the Lord. And now, at this last section, verses 18 to 23, he's focused on the rejoicing of both Jew and Gentile together as they seek the Lord. The Jew and the Gentile together will seek the Lord and will rejoice together when they seek Him. That's his focus. In verse 18, verses 18, 19, 20, and 23, he emphasizes the word of the Lord of hosts. And why the word of the Lord of hosts? Because this great God, Almighty God, has the power to carry out His Word. In this case, it's a word of promise. Otherwise, it will be or would have been a word of judgment. He's interspersed both of them throughout chapters 1 to 8. First in the visions, uh, both of judgment and hope. And now here also in chapter 7 and 8, what judgment they have already experienced. And now the hope and the promises to come. And because God is the God of armies or hosts, he has the power and the ability to carry out his word. Nothing is impossible with him. Jeremiah 32, 17 and 27. Nothing is impossible. Okay, now verse 19. The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months. These fasts, a couple of them have already been mentioned in chapter 7, 1 to 7, when the people approached the prophet Zacharias to ask if they should continue fasting. Here, he explains further that the fasting that they had been practicing in these months will be turned around. 
Fasting is related to mourning and dealing with sin and the consequences of sin. That's typically what fasting is. For example, the only mandatory fast of the Jews is in Leviticus 16, and that was the Day of Atonement. One day, the tenth day of the seventh month for the Jews, was a day of fasting all day long. And what was the Day of Atonement? To remember their sins and the forgiveness of sins that they need. That's what the Day of Atonement was when they offered their sacrifices in anticipation of the coming Christ and His sacrifice for our sins. Fasting is usually associated with mourning, sorrow, grief, related to sin and the consequences of sin. That's typically what it is in the Bible. Let's see, keep our place here and turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, and we start at verse 1. 58, 1, and we'll read 1 and following. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask for me, They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Now they speak. Why have we fasted and you not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you not notice? Behold, now God's answer. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking, Wickedness, And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. He calls on them to abstain from their wickedness, to repent of wickedness, such as in verse 6, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, and verse 9, and speaking wickedness. 
This is the purpose, or one of the purposes of fasting, to draw attention to the people's sins. Remember, we said their sins and the punishments or the consequences of their sins. Well, in Zechariah 8, 19, why were they fasting on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months? Because of their sin and the consequences of their sin. That's why. What happened in the fourth month, because these are not the same fasts as the fast on the Day of Atonement. It's not the same. These are additional ones that they instituted temporarily because they were mourning over their sins and the consequences of their sins. The first one is said the fast of the fourth, meaning the fast of the fourth month. This would be the month of June or in the original language called Tammuz. This was to commemorate the destruction of the wall of Jerusalem. The fast of the fourth was to commemorate the destruction of the wall of Jerusalem. It's mentioned, each of these are mentioned in a couple of places. We'll see them primarily in the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 39, we read Jeremiah 39 verse 2 about this destruction of the wall. Jeremiah 39 verse 2. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. The city wall was breached in the fourth month, in the time of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. The, fa- the fast of the fourth to commemorate the breaking or the breach of the wall of Jerusalem. Now the Babylonians had easy access to come into the city to sack it and destroy it completely. Then the next one is called the fast of the fifth month. The fast of the fifth. What happened in the fifth month? This commemorates the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. For this one, we'll go to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25, verses, uh, verse 8. 2 Kings 25, verse 8. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And verse 9, and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house, he burned with fire. Verses 8 and 9 describe how Nebuchadnezzar's captain destroyed the house of the Lord and the other great houses in the city. So that fast, the fast of the fifth, commemorates the destruction of the temple and the other great houses of the city. The fast of the seventh month, the fast of the seventh, what does that commemorate? This commemorates the assassination of the governor, the Babylonian-appointed governor of Judea or Judah called Gedaliah. He was assassinated and that wreaked some havoc to the people because they were upsetting the rule of the Babylonians. 
Jeremiah 41, verse 1. Jeremiah 41, verse 1. The seventh month would be the month of September, in Hebrew called Tishri. I forgot to tell you what it was for the temple. The temple in the fifth month, that would be the month of July, called Ab, A-B, Ab. So, Jeremiah 41.1. Now, it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, and one of the chief officers of the king, along with ten men, came to Mitzpah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, while they were eating bread together there in Mitzpah. We'll read all the way to verse 3 to read of the assassination. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mitzpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. This is the assassination of Gedaliah by Ishmael, uh, Ishmael the son of Nathaniah, not Ishmael the son of Abraham. There are different Ishmaels in the scripture. And also it says that it came about, this happened in the seventh month. 41 verse 1 says in the seventh month. So they commemorated his assassination since it was a great tragedy for the people. Also, finally we see the fast of the 10th month. The fast of the 10th month. This would be the month December, according to our reckoning in Hebrew called Tebet, the month of December. This we find in Jeremiah 39, verse 1. Jeremiah 39, verse 1. This commemorates the siege of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem. Now it came about when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They lay siege to it, and eventually they're able to breach it, the city wall, and invade. So the siege starts in the tenth month. That's why they were commemorating it which, of course, to see foreign armies all around your city about to invade would be a very um, horrific sight, sorrowful sight, and it would remind the people of their sins. That's why the punishments were coming, because of their sins. Okay, but the prophet Zechariah is now turning it. He's changing it because he says, these four fasts, additional fasts, will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. He's going to turn it around, or the Lord will turn it around, so the fasting will be turned into feasting. Their sorrow will be turned to joy, described as joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts. The feasts were supposed to be cheerful feasts. This is repeated several times, such as in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12, as he explains the various festivals of the people, he says, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 12. What was a time of mourning will now become a time of feasting. 
First, the mourning and then the feasting. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. And here it'll become plain that they are mourning and fasting because of sin, and God took away all joy. First is Jeremiah 7, 27 to 34. Jeremiah 7, 27. And you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. No more happy wedding feasts, wedding songs, and dancing is going to be a time of mourning because of their sins. Just like the fasting. Then we find another place in Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16, 1 to 9. Jeremiah 16, 1 to 9. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bear them, and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground, and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter a house of mourning, or go to lament, or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord. My loving kindness and compassion, both great men and small, will die in this land. They will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Neither will men break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, you shall not go into the house of feasting, into a house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom, and the voice of the bride. Because of their sins, he eliminates them. However, he's also the one who restores them 
and causes them to rejoice. We see this in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 10 to 14. Jeremiah 31, 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall never languish again. Then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. This is the same as what Zechariah is preaching. God caused them to sorrow. Now he's going to cause them to rejoice, to rejoice in him and in his goodness. He further says, well, before we go too further, was this not also true of John and Jesus? John the Baptist and Jesus? In Matthew 9, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. We read 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the groom cannot mourn as long as the groom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the, old, otherwise the wine bursts, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved." This analogy he uses, or two analogies in 16 and 17, are meant to say each has its place. Each thing has its proper function and place. And so John and the Pharisees fasted because John was preaching in a period of a desert-like existence for Israel. Because the people were very wicked, John was pointing out their wickedness and fasting and calling them to repent Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. Preparing them for the coming of Christ to make the ground more suitable for the word of Christ preached by Christ himself. That's what John was doing. He was a one who prepared the way of the Lord. He prepared the people for the Lord's arrival. But that means that the people were all in sin, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else that followed them faithfully, they were in sin, though they weren't supposed to be that way. Well, when Jesus came, he signified the arrival of the groom. And when the groom is there and the wedding is taking place, 
Nobody's fasting, nobody's mourning, everybody's happy, they're joyful, they're rejoicing, right? That's what happened in a microcosm, in a small scale, during the incarnation of Christ. However, that was to picture, to give a foretaste of the eventual wedding of Christ. The actual wedding, actual meaning the eternal one. Revelation 19, Revelation 19, 7 to 10. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place upon the return of Christ. We meet him and we are married to him in this sense forever. We also see at verse 10, it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Was this prophesied? Yes, this was prophesied. Not just in terms of what Zechariah is saying, but this marriage and final rejoicing between God or Christ and the people of Christ and the bride of Christ. This was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isaiah 25, 6 to 12. Isaiah 25, 6, where he also depicts a supper, a great supper. Isaiah 25, 6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. And the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Isaiah prophesies the same as Zechariah and as explained in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, that the peoples of the earth will be redeemed by the Lord and enjoy a lavish banquet with the Lord on that day. 
on that great day. Not everybody, though, not everybody, as verses 10 to 12 make clear, using Moab as an example of the wicked. It's for the people of God, the redeemed, for his chosen ones, the saved, the believers, but it's not for every person in the world. Well, Zechariah, he's preaching this and intimating this very truth, that because of the Lord and what the Lord does to reverse the circumstances of the people, this will take place. And then, for whom is it? It says here, for the house of Judah. Also in verse 23, it says, the garment of a Jew. Judah and Jew refer to the southern tribe, the tribe of Judah, which became a nation when in the time of, in the aftermath of the death of Solomon, Jeroboam took the northern tribes and made a nation called Israel mostly. And then the southern part, the tribe of Judah, came under the reign of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and several kings after him. A handful of them were good kings. The north had wicked and evil kings. But in this case, he's calling the redeemed Judah and Jew because this is an honorific name in terms of redemption. It's an honorable name in terms of redemption. He does not mean every Jew will be saved. He does not mean that at all because in the time of Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, there were also wicked Jews, some of whom conspired with the wicked foreigners to undermine the work of Ezra and Nehemiah. There there will always be wicked Jewish people. So in Zechariah 8.19 and 8.23, he's speaking of the redeemed Jews, the redeemed Judeans. That's what he means here. The redeemed ones. Um, Speaking of this term, or these two terms, the first instance that we have in the scripture for the people to be called Judeans or Jews, and these two terms are interchangeable, Judeans or Jews. The first instance is in the book of 2 Kings 16, verse 6. 16, 6. Let's just read 16, 5, and 6. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram, and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath, and have lived there to this day. This city, the Judeans had been living there, but the Arameans conquered them, at least that area, and removed the Judeans. This is the first instance in terms of chronology in the Bible. This would have taken place in the time of King Ahaz, and it was um, Ahaz who was the father of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah started his reign about 730 B.C. 
And so this would have taken place just before that, in the time of Isaiah the prophet, for example, whose prophecies spanned Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, Isaiah 1.1 says. So this would have taken place sometime before 730 B.C. That's when this southern tribe and the people were called Judeans or Jews. Before that, they weren't called that, as far as we know in the Bible, they weren't called that. They were known as Israel. They were known as um, Jacob. Sometimes the tribes would be, the, the biggest tribes would be identified to identify the nation, such as Ephraim or the city of Samaria or Joseph. These names would be used for the northern kingdom. In, in the south, it was primarily uh, Jew or Judah, Judeans, the tribe of Judah, Jerusalem or Zion. These would be synonyms of the south. In the scripture, both in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense, these terms have to be understood according to context. Sometimes the Bible is speaking of them in a literal, physical way, and at other times the Bible is speaking of them in a spiritual way. Using these esteemed names in a spiritual sense. Uh, one of the mountains of Jerusalem is called Zion. Correct? One of the mountains is called Zion. This is why it says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27. 127. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. He doesn't mean that the land, the actual dirt or the rocks or the mountains are going to be redeemed. He's talking about the people who are named after the name of the mountain. Another place in Isaiah is Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. 62, after calling them the daughter of Zion in 62, 11, 10 and 11, then in 62, 12, he says, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. They're going to be called a city not forsaken, but at the same time, they're called a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Okay, that's what we have in Zechariah 8, 19, and 23. These words used in a spiritual way, not a literal physical way. This is the way we should understand this passage and many passages in the prophets and even in the New Testament. This is the way we should understand them. Lest we believe that every Jew is going to heaven, which is not true because they don't all believe in Christ, which is a requirement both in the Old and in the New Testaments. All right. Now, since the blessing is promised, what should accompany the blessing? Not what is a prerequisite for the blessing, but what accompanies the blessing? 
what should coincide, what joins, what is attached to the blessing. Not what do we need to do, what work do we need to perform, how many good deeds do we need to perform to obtain the blessing. That's not what's happening in verse 19. Since he promises joyful and cheerful feasts, he says, so love, truth, and peace. Love, truth, and peace. In other words, when we have a happy state, we shouldn't be loving sin. We should not be loving uh, falsehoods or lies and chaos and misery. We shouldn't love that during a time of prosperity. Whatever blessings we have from the Lord ought to be used to love the truth and love peace. Whenever we have abundance, luxury, blessings, it should be accompanied by obedience to the Lord, not forsaking the Lord by saying, who is the Lord? Remember, that is the prayer of Proverbs 37 to 9, that he doesn't want poverty nor riches. If he has poverty, he might steal and profane the name of God. But if he has abundance, excessive luxury, wealth, he might say, who is the Lord? And then do his own will, seek his own wisdom, follow his whatever's right in his own eyes. But here we're told to love truth and peace. It's not often that the Old Testament says love, truth, and peace, or to love these virtues. Usually, it is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Love the Lord. And also Leviticus nineteen eighteen: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But how is it that we show our love for the Lord and for our neighbor? Or loving our neighbor to prove we love the Lord? By loving truth and peace. Because if we love lies, then we lie to each other. First, we lie to ourselves by deceiving ourselves, and then we deceive others by lying to them, thinking it's going to be just fine, when it's not going to be fine. The believer does not rejoice or love lies. The believer loves truth. He spoke of this truth earlier in verse 16, where he also spoke of this blessing, this upcoming blessing. Verse 16, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, verse 17, also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. We ought to speak truth to each other, speak the truth or judge with truth and judgment for peace. That's the goal. In every lawsuit, we should be using the truth and seeking peace in our relationships with each other. That's the purpose. But it can only happen if we speak the truth and judge with truth. That's why we must love the truth. Those who don't love the truth belong to Satan. 
John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. When he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan loves lies, but those who are sons of God love the truth. That should always characterize us. The word of truth is in the gospel. Colossians 1.5, it's called, the gospel is called the word of truth. That's what we should love. Love that and then carry that out, display that in our life. Ephesians 4.25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 1 Peter 2, 1-3. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We put aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Essentially, he says, put away lies and love the truth. Where will we find the truth? Verses 2 and 3, in the Word. The pure milk of the Word is where we find the truth. That should be a characteristic of all who love God. They love the truth. And they seek for peace. Peace is what we seek to establish Not that God guarantees peace in every relationship, but we should be peacemakers. Is that not what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 5? When he said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And how is it that we establish peace? How is it that we preach peace and become peacemakers? When we preach the gospel. Because it says in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but this peace spreads to one another. Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. He describes it as such in 12.9. 12.9 to 18, 12, 9 to 18. Let love, be without, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, 
but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then eight or 19 to 21, let God judge those who are his enemies and our enemies. Let God judge them. So be at peace with each other and even be at peace with those on the outside of the church. That is a characteristic of the believer, the believer in Christ, seeking the truth and seeking peace, trying to get people to be reconciled to God and we be reconciled and in harmony with each other, both in the church and outside the church. We're not troublemakers. We're not meddlers. We're not fomenting rebellion and wreaking havoc in society. We're doing the very opposite because we know the Lord. Well, we've come to verses 20 to 23, where the prophet turns his attention to this spreading abroad. It's not local or localized to only Judah or the nation of Judah, the tribe of Judah, not just there, but abroad. Next time, we will see this, what it means and the fulfillment of it, how this is fulfilled in history. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.